This is Our American Stories. And this next story, well, it combines a couple of things we have a deep interest here on this show. The first is fathers. Fathers and sons and fathers and daughters, a more neglected part of the fatherhood equation. You read a lot about the impact of fatherlessness or a father on a on a son, but not as much on daughters. And also the soldier's life, and particularly soldiers who've come back from combat. And boy, do we have a lot of soldiers who are here in the United States back from combat, many tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan, and languishing and having a hard time. And this story, well, it's actually an open letter from Benjamin Sledge to his daughter. Ben is a wounded combat veteran with tours in Iraq and Afghanistan where he spent time in the U.S. Army serving a portion of it under the Special Operations Command before leaving the military after 11 years of service. He's a recipient of the Bronze Star, Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals. Ben now works within the music industry for Heart Support, a nonprofit that helps millennials battling addiction, suicide ideation, depression, sexual abuse, loneliness, broken relationships, and a host of other issues. Here's Ben's letter to his daughter. My dearest Adelaide, one day you'll ask me, Daddy, what was the war like? And I'll freeze like a deer caught in the headlights. How should I answer a question like that, I wonder? Especially to a young girl curious about what she's learned in school. Daddy was in the war, both of them. I see his medals in our hallway. Perhaps this is what you'll tell your teacher. But as you grow into a teenager, you'll have more questions, and I imagine I will be somewhat of an enigma at times. So instead, I will tell you about young men and honor. When I was a young boy, I was told by other boys that nothing was better than getting one free hand up a girl's shirt in the middle of a dark movie theater. It was a strange sentiment because I wanted her to smile at me and hold my hand. But holding hands was for fags, they said. Grow a pair and cop a feel. There's a terrible thing that happens in a young boy's head when confronted by other members of your pack. Like jackals running wild, you do not want to be left alone to hunt for fear the pack may turn and devour you. So when they ask you to take down the innocent gazelle, you shyly comply to prove that you too are a member of this pack, this tribe. I wish I could tell you that your father was an honorable man when he was younger, but he was not. He ran with the pack and even became their leader at times, hunting at night like a rabid wolf or an insatiable vampire, feeding on those he deemed weak or easy prey. There were even the strong ones he simply viewed as a challenge. And like every vampire trick in the book, I was charming until I left you half dead and drained. There's a certain swagger young men carry when they're insecure. Perhaps it's why we hunt women sometimes. My swagger disappeared in the wars. Some men will piss themselves. Others cry for their mothers. I begged and begged not to be sent to the front lines. I will not lie, Addie. Men died, and I was afraid. But some men displayed honor until the moment of their death. An entire platoon refused to shoot a little girl carrying ammunition to the enemy each day. That decision would cost some of them their lives. Other men would brave bullets and death to save an injured friend. One held the hand of a fellow soldier and told him over and over it would be okay until he passed. It didn't matter he was being still shot at. Some would share their meals with poor farmers. 
After the war, I saw honor in a different way from other men who were not in the military. One evening, a group of us sat in a local pub nursing a beer. One of the men began bragging about the sexual exploits of a friend who was getting away with infidelity. The jeering was reaching a crescendo when a voice boomed over the laughter. What a sad excuse for a husband. The laughter died, and the men stared blankly into their beers for a long moment, refusing to look at the man who had defined them. While he glared, daring them to challenge him. I do not know what the future of dating will look like for you many years from now or how men will treat you. And I know now, as much as I'd like to, I cannot protect you from all the landmines and jackals running rampant. You will have to learn to face them on your own. But I can tell you what to look for. Look for honor. Look for integrity selflessness, sacrifice, and compassion. Find those who champion justice and fidelity, but above all, seek men who emulate humility and meekness. Do not, as so many others do, be deceived into thinking it is a weakness. Meekness is strength wrapped in humility, my dear daughter. It is strength under control in a world where so many are out of control. Do not confuse velvet words and simply holding a door open as honor. Instead, observe how he treats others, your waiter, the homeless, and the marginalized. Or if you see how he treats those at their highs and lows, you'll understand how he will treat you during your high and low points. Heed this wisdom and do not become disillusioned, for honorable men will still break your heart. A dishonorable man will break up with you via text, Snapchat, if that still exists, or simply ignore you. But an honorable man will break your heart face to face. Do not despair, my daughter, for as you read this, you may be tempted to believe that honorable men disappeared in the years before you were born. They still exist. You must search to find them, and that may take many years. In your search, though, you will encounter many men without honor. Do not blame them, for they had fathers who didn't know how to train their sons in the ways in which a man should walk. Many grew up without a male figure to explain what honor and integrity look like. Feel compassion for them instead. Point them to other men you see acting in honorable ways. I leave you with this in closing, Addie. When you were born, my heart was yours. And I wanted nothing more than to protect you, kiss your face, and watch you smile. One day, I hope to meet the man who feels the same way. All my love, Dad. And great job tracking this down, Faith and Benjamin Sledge. Thanks for those words of wisdom, and thanks for the courage to say them. Not easy, not flattering. But boy, I don't think there's anyone in the studio who didn't think a single word he said wasn't true about himself because men aren't inclined to speak so negatively about themselves. Actually, it's the other way around. This is Our American Stories.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our This Day in History series, brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, and all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their terrific and free online courses at hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. And on this day in history, one of the most iconic classical musicians, Mstislav Slava Rostropovich, was born in Russia in 1927. And his story might be even more dramatic than his infamously dramatic music. Slava. The Russian word for glory. Glory for his music and glory for his story. One of the great conductors. He always tells me, you know, not everything is important. Uh, if you put everything, give importance to the public, then they will slowly, uh, you know, be tired. And then, but sometimes you have to let them go and let them be in their thoughts and get them relaxed and then stress the material that you really want to stress. One of the great cellists. Julian Lloyd Webber said he's the greatest ever. Here's one of the other all-time greats, Yo-Yo Ma, reflecting on being a 15-year-old listening to a 1961 recording of Slava's. That recording just made my hair stand on end. I, I couldn't sleep that night. I think it was the combination of energy and to a, a player, a cellist, a fellow cellist, the impossibility of what he was doing on the instrument. Beyond physical ability, there was a kind of willpower that was so grand and it is overwhelming. You know, this it's kind of a, a reality distortion. You enter into that, uh, his sound world, or you see him in person, and something happens, and you fall under the spell. Here's Slava on how he casts that spell. I first make fire in my heart, in my body, because before I make a beat, I imagine this sound before I make a beat. You know, he's a funny guy, Father, because he was, he was physically very awkward. 
And he himself used to say, you know, I real ugly guy. <laughs> but his hands were the most beautiful hands I've ever seen. They were long, they were wide, they were gorgeous. They were something that a painter might have, might have painted. Uh, and anything that had to do with his hands was gorgeous. A fellow Russian cellist said that these hands made the cello look and sound like a completely new instrument. Slava's innovations in technique in one lifetime by one man are equal to all of humanity's over several centuries. My mother carried me for 10 months. I tell mother, you have extra months. Why you not make for me beautiful face? And mother tell me, my son, I was busy with make to you beautiful hands. When Slava was 21 years old, he dropped out of university. He wasn't failing, he wasn't parting too much or pursuing some great business idea. He was pursuing freedom, artistic freedom, in a country without. The Soviet regime forced his teacher, Dmitry Shostakovich, to leave the Moscow Conservatory. His crime? Producing music too chaotic, too innovative, at least for their brand of socialist realism. Their official statement declared that Stolstakovich had anti-democratic tendencies alien to the Soviet people. So in protest and in solidarity, Slava left too. He was a nobody then, so it didn't catch the Soviets' attention but he soon would, as a professional cellist and later as a conductor. What he gives to us in his music is what he terms, he called himself a foot soldier in the service of music, and I think of him in that sense, it would be the foot soldier reporting on the triumphs and tragedies of the world. Just two years later, at the age of 23, the Soviets awarded him with their Stalin Prize for his mastery of the instrument. and would later receive their highest distinction in all of the land, being named the People's Artist of the Soviet Union. He was a public figure now, and this would be a problem. In this moment, government come back and just close my mouth and tell, no, please not express something new. Slava's first expression as a public figure wasn't vocal at all. It was musical. It was this composition, Czech composer Antonin Dvorak's cello concerto in B minor, and Slava decided to perform it in London. But not just on any day. On the same day, the Soviets invaded Czechoslovakia to put an end to their democratic reforms. An invasion of 200,000 troops and 2,000 tanks. 72 people would die. As for Slava, to make sure his audience knew exactly what he was doing. After his performance, he stood up and proudly hoisted the Czech composer's score as a message of solidarity.
and he wasn't finished. As an encore, he played a solemn Bach piece that he said he'd like to offer to those who were mourning. Let's just say those Soviets weren't thrilled, and this was nothing compared to what Slava would do next. And when we come back, more of this great story. This is our American stories. And by the way, our music stories are all over our website, and that's at ouramericannetwork.org. And this is the power of music. Uh, In the end, it's to move people and move nations. And it has tremendous, and it has always had, tremendous political power as well. Again, it's why dictators always, always want to control the artists and the storytellers. It's because in the end, those are the people who move a nation. And we saw it in Hitler's, in Hitler's Third Reich, how he commissioned the great artist to celebrate himself and punished any artist who wouldn't put himself at the center of all the art and all the work. And if you can, one of our favorite stories was the Armando Valladares story. And if you recall, if you didn't hear it, and again, go to ouramericannetwork.org, Armando Valladares. He was a poet and dissident in Cuba. And he went to prison because he wouldn't essentially say that Fidel Castro was his God. He had a different God. And he simply wasn't going to renounce his faith. And he went into a prison camp and stayed there a very long time and wrote poetry in his own blood on the skin of an onion. And ultimately, and fairly recently, the Beckett Fund awarded him the Canterbury Medal and Prize. And that's always for religious freedom. And so very often the artist, the poet, the musician, and my goodness, I think some people would even call Martin Luther King an artist. I know Bono felt that way enough so to write his favorite song about Martin Luther King in the name of love, pride. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. When we come back, more on the life of Slava Rostropovich. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we now return to our This Day in History series and our celebration of Slava Rostropovich's life on his birthday.
send an open letter to the state-run newspaper Pravda, directly attacking the state censorship of art. Explain to me, please, why in our literature and art so often people absolutely incompetent in this field have the final word. There's the burn, and then came the meat of his message. Every man must have the right, fearlessly, to think independently and express his opinion about what he knows, what he has personally thought about and experienced, and not merely express with slightly different variations the opinion which has been inculcated in him. Let's just say they didn't run that letter. And this was all before Slava found this partner in crime. Since his body is doomed to die, his task on earth evidently must be of a more spiritual nature. It cannot be unrestrained enjoyment of everyday life. Here's Slava on this troublemaker. He was one of the greatest Russian writers. Yeah. Second Tolstoy, second Dostoevsky. Yeah. His name? Alexander Solzhenitsyn. A friend who was even more controversial than he was. And a friend without a home. Solzhenitsyn had served eight years in a labor camp for privately criticizing Stalin and then was sent into exile for life. His fortunes turned around when the next Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, exonerated him and even authorized his book exposing Stalin's prison labor system. One day in the life of Ivan Denisovich. The moment it hit the streets, it was gone in an instant. Then Khrushchev was removed, and along with it, any semblance of hope that Solzhenitsyn could publish future works. The Soviets declared him a non-person, and after they stole one of his manuscripts, he went into hiding. In 1970, Slava took him in, saying, he was my friend, he had no place to go. That same year, Solzhenitsyn was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature, but he could not personally receive it in Stockholm. He feared that he would not be let back into his home country. He was one of the only people willing to speak out, and speak out at the risk of his own life. In 1971, the KGB attempted to assassinate him with a biological agent, and they failed. And then in 1973 came his most famous work, a comprehensive look at the Russian prison system, the Gulag Archipelago, and it was the final straw. Solzhenitsyn banished from the Soviet Union. And Slava hosting Solzhenitsyn was the Soviet's last straw for him, too. Cancel my, my tour in the West in May 74. I go out from Russia alone, without my family. Why? Because Minister of Culture tell me I must go out. I will not utter one single lie in order to return, he said at the time. I would never see Russia and my friends again. The Soviets tried to make good on this. Four years later, they formally stripped Slava of his citizenship. He was wounded very deeply and stood up to it. Here Slava is, speaking through a translator. 
Я хочу сказать, что я очень глубоко и искренне люблю свою родину и свой народ. And I'd also like to say that I love very deeply and very sincerely my country and my people. For Maestro, I'm sure it must have been incredibly difficult as a human being to suffer and not to be able to return to his homeland. And I think that made his art only more richer. I was born anew, Slava said at the time. I found a great deal more in music than I did when I lived in the Soviet Union. I re-examined everything, and I could see everything more vividly. All the composers, even Beethoven, came to mean more to me. And in 1977, Slava found his new place in the world, a place whose language he didn't know, Washington, D.C., as a celebrated music director and conductor of the National Symphony Orchestra. Washington loves celebrity, loves fame, loves glamour, and my goodness, he had that. And I think both Washington and Slava loved the fact that this escapee from communism was going to head the orchestra in the capital of the United States. Before the break, I want to read a little bit from Amway co-founder Jay Van Andel's book, An Enterprising Life where Alex first read about Slava Rostropovich. In 1982, as Amway was preparing to enter the European market, they decided to sponsor Slava's month-long tour of the continent with the National Symphony, Symphony Orchestra. And here's what Jay wrote about Slava and why they did it. Quote, Only in a free society can artistic talent like Slava's come to fruition and enrich the lives of each individual. A free enterprise economy can generate such that people can afford to buy the work of actors, artists, musicians. Talented people who cannot find enough buyers for their work will find in a free economy philanthropically-minded individuals to support their work. Socialism keeps everyone, except the political elites, at such a low standard of living that they cannot afford to support artists. By supporting the National Symphony Orchestra, Amway was acting in its role as an ambassador for free enterprise. We hope that everyone who sat in a European auditorium to hear the orchestra noted two things. First, Slava, an example of a man once oppressed by statism and now set free to use his abilities to the fullest. Second, funds made possible by the American free enterprise system working to promote those culture of events that make human existence more enjoyable. Mission accomplished. Amway has more than 250,000 distributors in Europe today. Spinning this virtual cycle of free enterprise all over again. And when we come back, the final chapter in this story of the life of Slava Rostropovich here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to the final portion of our This Day in History feature on Slava Rostropovich, who was born today in 1927, the Russian cellist and conductor who was banished from the Soviet Union for standing up for his artistic freedom and freedom writ large. First, for the freedom of his professors, then that of the Czech people, then his own, and finally his friend, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. When we left off, Slava finally found freedom in the United States of America, and artistic freedom as the music director and conductor of the National Symphony Orchestra. We probably could play the loudest of any orchestra and the softest of any orchestra, and this was what Slava demanded of us. He also demanded, everyone loosen up. He sometimes surprised his colleagues by pasting centerfolds from men's magazines into the pages of their scores. His mischievous sense of humor cut through the sobriety of the concert atmosphere. I think the most intimidating thing was in a rehearsal. And he would stop the entire orchestra and he would point to an individual player. Like to me, he's done this to me, I'm sure he did it to you. He would stop and he would say... This finger ain't no good. And he would show you on his arm, second finger much better. And you would think, oh my gosh, he's right. And so you pick up your pencil and you write a second finger over that F because you had played it with a first finger and it didn't work. And he had seen it and he had stopped the whole orchestra. And this is so embarrassing. And then he would back up four measures and we would play it again. And he would stare at you to see if you used the fingering that he told you to use. I've met probably 10,000 or 15,000 people who claim to be students of Slava. I mean, I, I sometimes had the feeling that if they were in the same room with him, they became a, a student. He was able to express what he needed to uh, with his body, body language, with his facial expressions. He wanted it to be devastating, devastating, Freddie. When you come in in the first movement of Tchaikovsky 6, after quiet bass clarinet, six women in front row must die of heart attack. He was trying to get across, you know, he just couldn't get it across. And finally he said to the upper string, he says, you must play this like you have fork and brain. That got the point, just the image of that, like, got the point across. And immediately was there. Like one time he, he said he wanted the symbol to sound like every glass in Washington DC would break at the same time. Every water glass, you know. He 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 wouldn't he was a, maybe over the top, but he got his point across. And ultimately the the musical impact was there. newspaper the Washington Post wrote Rostropovich the man was as warm and generous as his artistry it was not unusual for him to leap from the conductor's podium after a particularly satisfying interpretation and hug and kiss every musician within reach he was shameless and an irrepressible flirt and a connoisseur of fine wine and drink 
a man who gulped vodka in much the same way and with much the same enthusiasm that a professional athlete might gulp Gatorade. And he was good copy for anyone who wanted to write about him, and so Time Magazine did, putting Rostropovitz on its cover, calling him the Magnificent Maestro. Slava lived more in one day than I live in 10 years. During his years of exile, Rostropovich often described himself as an ambassador of the Russian people. It's not the rotten government. And so when new Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev pursued democratic reforms, Slava was there to welcome him, joining President Ronald Reagan at a White House meeting in 1987. And then in 1989, this happened. I'm Peter Jennings in New York just a short while ago. Astonishing news from East Germany, where the East German authorities have said, in essence, that the Berlin Wall doesn't mean anything anymore. The wall that the East Germans put up in 1961 to keep its people in will now be breached by anybody one who wants to leave. Dancing everywhere, East and West joining in a celebration of a united future. As quickly as he could, Slava flew to Berlin, cello in hand, and played an impromptu concert at the scene. Slava chose one of Bach's solo suites, a work he said that at the age of 70 he had taken up for the first time because I now had balance at my disposal for the first time. Why do you go so fast? You're uh, you're not a young man anymore, but uh, I want you to be healthy. But but you still travel enormously, and even more now. I say, that's right, even more now because like a sportsman who runs a marathon, in the end I have to run faster. <laughs> Only a few months later, Slava's citizenship was restored. And he wasted no time. The very next month, he took the National Symphony Orchestra to Moscow in Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. I think bringing an American orchestra playing their music, Russia, Kofia, Tchaikovsky, and Shostakovich bringing their music over and playing it with his interpretation with an American orchestra, that's a big deal. Even the rehearsals in Moscow leading up to the concert were a big deal. For Slava, and especially for the Russian people. He had not been able to sleep, so he went out in the street and he was walking down the street and it's like five o'clock in the morning and some old lady is out sweeping the sidewalk or shoveling the snow because it was the middle of winter. And she stopped and she said, Slava Rostropovich? And he said, yes. And she said, I thought you were dead. It's a miracle. And, and they all treated him like it was a miracle that we were there, that he was there, that he was alive, that he was still playing, he was still conducting. Even just the dress rehearsal, and they allowed the audience into the dress rehearsal. And in the back of the hall in the Moscow Conservatory, I mean, there's the nice seats up front, but in the back, it's just these benches, like I'm sitting on here, these hard benches. And maybe they're supposed to be five people in one bench, and there'd be like 12 people just jammed in there like sardines, and they had all paid their five rubles, and they were going to see this if it was the last thing. And you just looked at them, and you saw how desperate they were, and you realized he wasn't kidding. It really was like life and death to them. 
and, and they brought these flowers, bouquets of flowers, and they come up to the podium afterwards and they put these flowers. And it was like somebody died. There was this mountain of flowers on the podium after the concert. For his final encore, Slava chose this American classic, John Philip Sousa's Stars and Stripes Forever, the traditional finale of the National Symphony's annual 4th of July concert on the West Lawn of the Capitol. The Moscow audience you can hear clapping and standing in ovation. Later, amidst bear hugs and vodka toasts at a post-concert reception, Slava was asked why he picked Stars and Stripes Forever. The idea, he said, came from the heart. Mistivlav, Slava, Rostropovich, forever a Russian, forever an American dreamer. And what a great piece. And Greg, as always, does such a great job, Alex, bringing it home. And what were a couple of things? I know when you're doing a piece like this, Alex, there's always something you you wanted to put in, you didn't put in. One or two things? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, you could hear his friendship with Solzhenitsyn. And one of the, when he visited the Berlin Wall, he said, we should really build a statue here to this man. It just wasn't me. It was Solzhenitsyn. And then in 1993, during the siege of the Russian White House, which many people remember, they're achieving democratic reforms and those communist hardliners are fighting back. Slava happened to be in, Torah, in, uh, in Russia touring again with the National Symphony, and he planned to give a free concert in Red Square. And it was ri- originally just planned as a gesture to music lovers who couldn't fit in those smaller indoor concerts. But because of what was going on, there was 100,000 people there at that concert. You see a classical music yeah. concert. and Slava said of it, Russians need to be reminded that at times like this, they are a great people. Events disrupt, disrupt things a, a little sometimes, but listening to this music is a reminder that there's a great nation here. Well, what a great story. And go to ouramericannetwork.org, grab this, share it with friends, by the way. You know, as we're hearing a lot about what folks think about America and the American flag, I always love asking immigrants what they think. Russians, Ethiopians, Nigerians... Uh, from all over the world, we heard Frank Capra, of course, on July 4th and what he thought, Italian immigrants. And you don't hear much, well, let's just say there's not a lot of protest theology around those folks. Because they've lived somewhere else. And they know what it's like to live under dictatorial powers. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. I don't know what to say. Slava. That's it. His life story. And... I just love that kind of storytelling. Thanks so much, guys, for all you do, and gals, because Faith has joined our team. More after these messages. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and now it's time for another edition of Steve Goldberg's Daydreams. You heard that right. 
we're going to hear a dude's daydreams. And not just any dude, one of our favorite dudes. Steve is the former chairman of the sociology department at City College, is the foremost expert on patriarchy, and a guy who daydreams a lot. And now we bring you Steve and his latest daydream, and before it, Steve reads to us his mandatory disclaimer. These are all real daydreams that I have had over the past seven decades. They are not written in the sense that one paces the floor at five in the morning trying to write a daydream about X, Y, or Z. These daydreams all simply arrived fully formed, poppied into my head unexpectedly. That's the wonderful thing about daydreams. They require no talent at all. There is a real television program called Shark Tank. The program consists of five real-life billionaires and individuals who bring their inventions for the billionaires to invest in or not, or to occasionally ridicule as hopelessly unlikely to make money. The inventor says what he or she is asking for, say $100,000, in exchange for the bidding billionaires getting 20% of the equity, that is, a fifth ownership of the invention. The billionaire makes the offer or refuses to do so. I am in the program with my invention of a dramatically new kind of prosthetic limb. Well behind me is an obviously legless soldier in a wheelchair. My task now is to persuade a billionaire that my invention is likely to make money, the only thing he or she seems to care about. I make my case explaining the financial virtues of my uh, invention, though it is obvious to both the billionaires and to me that any potential profit fails to approach what is necessary for a billionaire's interest. This is the easy part. I then must face brutal questioning from a nasty billionaire called, as a joke, Mr. Wonderful, a man who has always asserted that he cares about absolutely nothing except money. Without much hope, I explained to Mr. Wonderful that, while the money might be small compared to uh, his usual expectation, it will come with a uh, surprise that will make him happy uh, that he accepted the deal. Mr. Wonderful sneers. At this point, the legless wheelchair-bound soldier, who had been moved off stage without anyone noticing, walks back on stage. Mr. Wonderful, looking a bit sheepish, says, Okay, I'm in. One million dollars. No equity. And that's a great story. And we are now very fortunate to be joined by Steve Goldberg himself and for the first time on the show, his bride, Joan. And thanks, both of you, for joining us. Good to be here. You bet. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Joan, before, before we start with Steve, what's it like living with Steve? Someone who is as brilliant and who daydreams as much? Talk about life with Steve. Oh, my goodness. Well, life with Steve is um, an endless pageant of surprises. You wake up every day, you have a list of things that you think you're going to do that day, and then all of a sudden, Steve interferes with some big idea or some small idea. 
but it's um, it's a lot of fun, and the imagination couldn't begin to uh, to think it up by itself. That's fun. And how long have you been married to Steve, Joan? How long how long has this love affair uh, gone on? Oh. Well, we've been together for thirty three years. Oh my goodness, that's terrific! And just getting started, right? Just getting started. <laughs> <laughs> just getting started. Let's talk about your mutual passion, uh, Steve. To you first. Uh, uh, shark Tank. I, I, I wouldn't have picked you for a Shark Tank guy, but then you surprise us all the time, Steve. Uh, oh, well, we, we literally may have seen them all. There have been, I believe, 169. And I tried to figure out recently, um, from because they list them all on, online, we've seen at least 165 or many of them a number of times. We really find them fascinating. But what surprised me about, about my daydreams, and particularly with reference to this uh, Star, Tanks, uh, Star Tank daydream, I can't imagine that anyone would think of the Star Tank daydream as at all funny. But while I wasn't certain that anyone would care in the slightest about my previous daydreams, people seemed to have liked them quite a bit. But everyone who enjoyed the previous daydreams described them as funny. Funny. It never for a moment occurred to me that any, there was anything whatever funny about the daydreams. To be a bit grandiose, I thought of the daydreams as sort of little O. Henry types of stories about someone in trouble and an ending that was surprising and optimistic. That was the daydream's function, and funny had nothing to do with it. Well, you know, I but think if people uh, find them funny, then fine. Well, it's fine with me. It is fine, and let me tell you, a lot of people work very hard to do funny, and they can't get to it. And I think very often in life, funny is that which happens to us that other people think is funny, Steve. And I think this is why it's so hard to find great comedy writing. It's uh, it's a difficult thing to wrap your hands around, and you weren't trying to wrap your hands around it. It's just the effect it's produced. I know it's been a delight to us, and it doesn't mean that all the things you were saying about what your intentions were when you were, or not intentions, because you can't intentionally have a daydream, but what you thought would be the effect of sharing these daydreams, well, I think that that's happened too. But in addition, I think people have found it amusing, the stories amusing. When we come back, we're going to talk to both of you, Steve and Joan, about your favorite Shark Tank episodes. We'll have some clips. We'll talk about ours. And this, this love affair with this, this show about a bunch of billionaires trying to get a piece of a company of somebody who's wanting to live the American dream themselves. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. For the two segments here, Steve and Joan Goldberg. Steve, of course, the man who gives us those great daydreams. More after these messages.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're talking to Steve and Joan Goldberg, and we're talking about Shark Tank. Because, well, one of our favorite persons and his bride love a show we love, and I think actually America has come to love, and who would have ever thought this would be the number one show on Fridays in America, and yet it is. It's captivating. And let's talk about the sharks themselves. Joan, who's your favorite shark and why? Well, I I like Laurie Grenier because I think Laurie is essentially a kind person as well, as well as a very knowledgeable person. And she starts out her critiques exactly as a professional critic would. She um, finds the thing that's positive about the shark's invention, no matter how ridiculous it is. Um, she absolutely respects the shark, and it's very clear in, in the, her interactions with them. Um, and then she ends up by telling them the truth, and they can accept it. Yep, it's true. And she, she's very kind, even as she rejects the uh, pitchers and the suitors of the money. And I think that's exactly right. Uh, Steve, who's your favorite? I think Damon is my favorite because he has the the greatest variety in his responses. The others, while they're all interesting, you sort of know where they're coming from from the beginning. With Damon, you really don't know. He has a a, a range of responses, and that's that's what I like about him. And he's also sort of hip. I just like him a lot. Yeah, he's very likable, and you're right. You don't know where he's going to come down. You know what Mr. Wonderful is going to do almost <laughs> always. He's going to ridicule the folks to get the price down, and then if he does come in with an offer, he wants a royalty agreement in which he That's gets right. paid. It's on, always annoying. Always <laughs> annoying. And by the way, I don't know that this show could, though he might not be a favorite, I think he's the indispensable shark because he's the guy that everyone loves to hate. Or oh, that, I think so. So that, I think that's. I don't think he's anybody's favorite. Now let's get to uh, favorite episodes. Joan, uh, let's talk to you first. One of your favorite episodes. Share with us. Well, my absolute favorite Shark Tank episode came from the very first show, and um, a guy walks on named Darren Darren Johnson. He looks just like an ordinary guy. He's seeking a million dollars in return for fifteen percent equity for product development in his company, the Ionic Ear. You know how frustrating it can be to use typical Bluetooth devices, he says. They slip around, they fall out eventually, you lose them. But he has a solution, the Ionic Ear, an implantable device that improves the process. What are you implanting the Bluetooth into, asked Shark Damon John. Your phone? Some other device? Nope. To make it work, Darren explains, you have it implanted in your neck just below your ear. I remember. Maybe at the idea of brain surgery, Damon drops out. And <laughs> with that, yeah, that, I, I think I dropped out too. Let's take a listen to the clip of the brain implant uh, story. What we have developed is an implantable Bluetooth technology. If I could direct your attention to the first slide, here's the surgery locations. This is just underneath the earlobe. The surgery location? This is, this is surgery. You would be under anesthesia. God. <laughs> you guys are so close-minded. Please let him finish. Okay. Thank okay. you. Thank you. At the base of the device is a battery. Within its center are Bluetooth electronics, and at its tip, a microphone, a speaker, and an AC charging port. Stop the charge- right there. Back to surgery 101. Okay. Sure. Darren, we're gonna we're gonna operate on people. Yes, we are. We're gonna stick something in near their brain. No, we no, may no, no, not no. puncture their. Ear. You know what? I I can sum up where I stand on this already. 
is pretty disturbing and it freaks me out. I'm already out. <laughs> I love that pitch. And they were, you know, you have to both admit, what was fun watching there is how astonished the guys who were pitching were that someone would think this was a bad idea or an uninvestable idea. Yeah. <laughs> and the inventor was absolutely incredulous. He couldn't understand why the shark tanks were reacting the way they did. Right, right. And then they actually do the post-interview where almost every time they get rejected, they're like, well, we'll show those sharks because it just it almost reminds me of Ralph Cramden in The Honeymooners. Every idea and pitch he ever had was the greatest idea, and most of yeah, them were pretty, right. pretty darn silly. Steve, another favorite of yours. Oh, I think my favorite was the Urination Golf Club. <laughs> this was perhaps the dopiest of all Shark Tank pitches, though, uh, of course, it had lots of competition. Um, this is, just as it sounds, a golf club into which one urinates. No need to go behind a tree, though, of course, it's unlikely you could uh, hide what you were doing from the other golfers um, when you were availing yourself of the virtues of the club. Uh, sharks thought this was as ridiculous as it seemed, and no one bit. And let's take a listen to the Urination Golf Club clip right now. I'm a board-certified urologist, and I have a successful practice in South Florida. Many of my male patients have two things in common. Number one, well, they urinate a lot. And number two, they love to play golf. And if you've been on a golf course, I won't have to convince you that the trees are sparse and the bathrooms are almost non-existent. That's why my patients encourage me to design and produce the Euro Club. Uh-oh. I can't wait. I see where this is going. This is a trademark patent-pending product that functions as a self-contained receptacle. Can you imagine being in the patent office, Steve, and seeing this product come to your come across your desk? Yeah. Oh, it's delight. One more, Steve, from you, and then we'll, uh, we'll close up the segment. But one more favorite. Okay, I like the drawing of cats. Um, there was a guy who made drawings of cats. He did them all himself, so it wouldn't seem that this was really easy to uh, turn into a huge business. Um, and it, as I say, it struck me as the most uninvest- uninvestable of pitches, um, pretty much like the Urination Golf Club. Um, the guy did all the drawings himself. No chance of success, it seemed to me. But I was wrong. The sharks loved it, and it later became profitable. There is an economy for stupid, and I am overflowing with it. Now, with their universal appeal, my cat drawings are poised to be the next pet rock. I charge people $9.95 for my cat drawings. Nine thirty-two of that is, is profit. 932 is profit. By the way, I have to, if we can give the guys who created this show, and it's Mark Barnett, basically, one of the great TV producers, you know, people are learning a lot, Steve and Joan, about Mm -hmm. how enterprise works. I mean, I have young people at the college, we broadcast here at Ole Miss, who now have Shark Tank parties. They now understand that the billionaire wasn't born a billionaire. Not one of the people on that stage grew up with any money. None of them. Right. So they're all self-made. And so now we dispel the idea that you come to this country and you're either rich or poor, and that's that, that we live in or born in static classes. But moreover, now what the people want, they don't just want the money of the shark for partial ownership. They're looking for something more. They're looking for the wisdom of the shark. That is their knowledge. One of the things that's really great that the, the sharks, every one of them points out that they've, they've gone through failure in their lives and they weren't overnight successes. They had lots of failures, many of them, before they really hit it. 
Yep, it's so true. And I love it when periodically someone will be having their product move along, but they're not really ready yet. And the sharks will go, go back and work harder or go back and get more sales. Or you're okay without our money. You don't need our money. There are many times where the pitch is so good, the profit's so good, the sharks are like, what do you need us for? Just keep going. You can do this by yourself. So I, I find that, you know, in, in the end, it's a tremendous defense of capitalism, this show. Any thoughts on that? Well, to Shark Tank's credit, a good number of the people who come on Shark Tank didn't have the an idea till they saw a Shark Tank. Yep. And then they said, maybe there's something I can come up with. And they did, and they got on Shark Tank, and in some cases was successful. It's quite impressive. It really is. And, Joan, any final thoughts for everybody on, on, on Shark Tank as, as a lover and a listener? Um, I think that you have to beware that it becomes addictive, that um, as soon as you cross in front of that TV set, especially if you have somebody who DVRs for it, you can look at Shark Tank any time of the day or night, and it's a great procrastinator. Oh, it really is. And I, I ever think I know a reason why. Each one of them is a story. Each one has human characters. You, I mean, right. you don't know who's right. coming through next. It could be a crazy pitch. It could be fun. It's like the gong show, almost. You never know what's coming on next. But you, 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 the characters involved, and I think they've done a great job on the shark side of having very different kinds of sharks that appeal yeah. to very different types of people. Well, you know, I, I appreciate both of you. We should come on again every few months, pick some of your other favorite Shark Tank episodes. We love this show. America loves this show. And America loves a dream fulfilled. And my goodness, you're right. People are now watching the show and thinking, heck, I got an idea. Let me pitch it to the Sharks. This is Lee Habib. We've been talking to Steve and Joan Goldberg. And thanks so much, both of you, for joining us. And we look forward to having you on next time to talk about Shark Tank. Thank you very much. And thank you both. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories for the hour. Stevie Ray Vaughan, his life, his music, and we're going to have him talk to you about his own guitar playing. Here he is talking about how he doesn't normally have a rhythm guitar underneath his lead solos, and how sometimes even some of his favorite guitar licks hit the cutting room floor. Do you have rhythm guitar behind most of your solos on the record, or no? You don't? No. Yeah. I'll scratch and sniff. Mm-hmm. That's the only one. What I ended up playing for the solo was this, was this based off of this uh, 
Okay, that was really... Do that slower because I'm going to put... Based off of anyway, and that was the way this song was. It was either going to be Scratch and Sniff or Houses Rocket was going to start. Right. Okay. Which tune you end up using that on? Well, I used the uh, on Scratch and Sniff. I used I used parts of it. Okay, there was these two songs. I was wanting to use, and then go to the. thought it would fit in with a rock and roll song you know <laughs> right you know and it just ended up where i never we never could decide which one to put it in <laughs> so it didn't make it on either one <laughs> so when we were doing, I was doing this solo for scratch and sniff i tried to play this other stuff and i hated it hated what I was playing right and I went hmm let me go try this one more time yeah. so I just turned on all the gadgets I could find <laughs> including a wah-wah yeah you know that's so when the solo starts with the wah-wah yeah. right yeah and started playing that you know and so there you have it Vaughn talking about what he did in the studio and how he did it Vaughn is asked in this same interview about the blues and what made him like it so much it's a great answer what is it about the blues? I mean, you didn't like stop playing blues. At one point you go, oh, well, I'm going to play, uh, you know, I'm going to learn how to play heavy metal. Or, I mean, you play blues because you love the blues. And what is it about the blues to you that makes it just feel so good to play and get better or whatever? It just sounded more like the real thing than something else did. It's not like I automatically went, well, uh, this is cooler than this. Right. You know, or uh, this is more emotion. You know? <laughs> When I heard it, it just killed me, mm-hmm. you know, it slayed me. Right. There was just not a question. Hearing it different ways, you know, like from all these different ways I've been talking about, English blues boom to, to like authorized recordings and, you know, bootleg stuff, you know, of everybody you can dream of. Just listening and listening and listening, and the more I heard, the better I liked what I heard. And how has the blues changed for you? Uh... Well, uh, in the fairly recent years, in some ways I felt like I've gotten more in touch with it, but it's usually when I go and see somebody, when I go when I go see somebody that's that's just used to playing a small club, that's not used to being riding around in a fancy tour bus and mm-hmm. playing in arenas. There's a difference there. On one side of the coin, it may look like, okay, well the guy sounds that way, so we can't sell him. On the other side of the coin is, uh, I've been sold, so I can't sound like that, <laughs> you know. And uh, every time I get to hear somebody sound real. Once again, I get the chance to come home. It makes me want to play that way, right. even that much more, and find a way where I can play that way and still snicker when somebody says, record sold. <laughs> <laughs> and there's Stevie grappling with that fame thing and always wanting to keep his authenticity, worried about that big road show that goes to the next big road show and forgetting why he ever picked up an axe to begin with. Vaughn was inspired musically by American and British blues rock. Here he talks about the difference between the British and American styles of playing. 
as I was hearing the original blues masters from the States, um, I was also hearing the English blues boom at the same time. So not only was I getting the original, but I was getting this um, updated, energized version of the same thing. So I had less reservations and less reasons to be so-called a purist. And therefore, I wasn't as restricted about what I could learn. Show me how you combine the two, then. For instance, okay, Freddie King does Hideaway Like. Clapton does it like this. Yeah, there's, there's a small difference there. And then it got down to the drugs. The guy had mastered his, his art, had taken it in places that very few had ever taken it. Stevie talks here about the time in his life when he realized that he had a problem with drugs and with alcohol. It was over a period of about 25 years that uh, in one form or another I was you know, drinking or using something. And uh, it got to the point where finally... I knew for I knew for quite a while that I could, that I had a problem with things like that with, with drugs and alcohol, but it was at this, also at the same it was it was I knew that I had a problem, but I couldn't stop, and I knew that I couldn't stop. Every time that I had more pressure, seemed to be a good excuse for more, and every time there was less pressure, it was party time. Those, that's the disease telling you that you don't have it, you know. Oh, sure, you can, come on, you can make it, you know. And uh, what happened was I ended up finally, I, knew, I saw it coming too. I knew it was coming. Finally, I had a, every kind of breakdown at once that I think a person could have. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, and, and the whole ball of wax melted. Vaughn describes the moment he woke up paralyzed by fear. I woke up on a bus, uh, crying, scared of everything, didn't know why. Didn't know what I was scared of, much less how to deal with it. And that went on for quite some time until we were, it was just obvious that I could not keep going. And went and saw Dr. Victor Bloom in London. He put me in London Clinic, which is a private, private hospital. I did detox there. And we also checked out my stomach because I was having some struggle problems, possible ulcers, and it was just, come to find out it was just, there was, he said my stomach looked like a 65-year-old man. And when we come back, Stevie Ray Vaughan finds sobriety, writes the greatest blues record, I think, ever written, recorded, and performed. And you'll hear a lot from that record here. Well, let Stevie Ray's axe and his voice and his immense talent do the talking in the last segment. The life of Stevie Ray Vaughan, 
celebrated here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, the life of Stevie Ray Vaughan celebrated. And we're talking about Stevie Ray's bout with alcoholism and drug addiction and his path to sobriety. He tells us where he went next and how he was shown the way to sobriety. After I left that hospital, I was in London for three or four days, I guess, and came back to to the States, went and checked in immediately to a uh, Charter Peachford Hospital in Atlanta. I was there for about a month. And what that place did not only is a, is a good place to be away from the uh, away from drugs. You know, you do clean out that way. But it not only taught us, it not only got got us dried out all of the people that were in there and that have gone through them before, but it gives you, it teaches you a set of tools. Um, well, if you just dry up, you might as well just, you know, all you're doing then is white knuckling it and just, you know, on your own willpower, it's not going to work. You know, willpower has nothing to do with this. A lot of people think, why do I need to stop? It's not that easy. There is a, it's actually a disease. Alcoholism and addiction is a disease. And it, it's, it's a disease that tells, it's the only disease that I know of that, Part of it is that the disease actually tells you you don't have it. It's okay to it's okay to have one, and one is the one that gets you messed up. All the rest of them don't matter. And they don't. And here's Stevie Ray talking about his newfound sobriety, and he was asked if he performs better when sober. Uh, nowadays I'm I'm drug free, alcohol free. For a long time, no, I wasn't. About 25 years, and. Just trying to work through some of those problems and and grow from them, grow from those mistakes. The the this business, the scheduling of it, can call for can call for needed some people to see at least think that they need artificial energy, or not thinking about something to sedate themselves. Uh, a lot of that a lot of that comes with the image of rock and roll and and playing music. Um, 
regardless of all that, it still ends up where it's not necessary. It really isn't. Do you feel as though your music is better now than it was when you were under the influence? Yeah, there was, you know, of course, of course for a long time I thought that was the solution. You know, I found that it was a problem. <laughs> you know, uh, I, th I think we're, our music's a lot clearer now. I really do. I feel a lot better inside, I know that. Double Trouble bassist Tommy Shannon remembers when he and Stevie Ray prayed together in a hotel room to overcome both of their addictions. I remember one night, I'll never forget this. This was about six months before we finally hit bottom. That's what we call it in the program of recovery. Uh, we both got down on our knees in this hotel room. We were praying, you know, please, God, help us stop this, you know, because we, we knew we were in some deep trouble. We knew that, but we couldn't stop. And we said this real deep prayer. We got up, went over there, did some more cocaine, drank some more booze. But the thing is, the prayer was answered, you know. It came six months later. And we both got clean and sober together, and it was like walking out of a cesspool out into the sunshine, you know, on a beautiful day. And out of that came Stevie Ray's greatest record, In Step. And again, I think many people consider it the finest blues rock record ever written. And then he embarked on a tour in which he opened for Joe Cocker. And I'll tell you a little bit about that tour later. But I saw him on July 7th, 1990, and he died just a month and a half later. And it really rocked everybody, because to see a guy finally clean up after 25 years, only to then have his life ended abruptly in a, in a helicopter crash. Well, the drummer for Double Trouble, Tommy Shaw, talks about the last words he had with Stevie Ray Vaughan before he died. The last night in Alpine Valley... The shows were over and everything was winding down and he and I sat backstage for like a half an hour. It was a really nice time too because it was, everything was really, really relaxed. It wasn't hectic like, you know, things that surround shows of that magnitude can be. And um, we talked about families. We talked about the next record that we were looking to make in the future and talked about all kinds of things. It was real... A really nice talk. He said, I, I gotta go. I, um, I said, go, where are you going? He said, well, I'm, I'm gonna go back to Chicago. I said, well, why? He said, well, I'm gonna go back and call. This is a girlfriend. He's gonna go call the girlfriend. I said, well, I said, I got phones here. He said, he said well, I, I gotta go. I said, well, um, I'll see you back in Chicago. He said, all right, because I love you. I said, I love you too. And he left and that was the last time I saw him. It was, that was always strange to me that he left. And then came this news on August 27, 1990. Take a listen. This is MTV News. I'm John Norris. Guitar great Stevie Ray Vaughan was killed early Monday morning in a helicopter crash at Alpine Valley in East Troy, Wisconsin. Vaughn, who would have turned 36 on October 3rd, was leaving the venue after a Sunday night concert there in which he'd shared the bill with Eric Clapton and Robert Cray. Vaughn's helicopter apparently lost its bearings in heavy fog and crashed into a man-made ski hill. Also killed in that crash, along with Vaughn and the helicopter pilot, were Bobby Brooks, a respected booking agent with the Contemporary Artists Agency, 
and two members of Eric Clapton's road crew, bodyguard Nigel Brown and tour manager Colin Smythe. Here's John Meyer, Meyer, who we started with, describing Vaughn as a hero for saving himself from drug and alcohol. This inspired Meyer to live his life sober. One of the traits that define a hero is courage. And Stevie had incredible courage because he fought to overcome the demons of drug and alcohol addiction. And when he did, he returned to the stage an even better guitar player for it. The only reason that I know exactly what sobriety meant to Stevie in his heart and soul is because he had the courage to talk openly about it on stage. And so because of Stevie, I grew up proudly turning down every drug and drink ever offered to me because in my mind, that could bring me closer to being like the man I never met and never could. Stevie was the ultimate guitar hero and heroes live forever. On behalf of every guitar player and every blues lover, it is the honor of a lifetime to induct Stevie Ray Vaughan and Double Trouble into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And so we're going to play a little of that record. And, uh, well, here's how it all starts. And this is from In Step, the first cut on this great record. Right after this, the album storms right into Crossfire. This is Our American Stories, the life of Stevie Ray Vaughan. I was lucky enough to catch him in a concert at the Garden State Arts Center, opening for Joe Cocker on July 7th, 1990. And for me, the the show highlight was him slowing things down, talking a bit about his love of jazz and peace and quiet. And we're going to leave with Riviera Paradise. Again, the life of Stevie Ray Vaughan, celebrated here on Our American Stories. 